Hello, and welcome to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. Every week we'll cover one of the many reported cases of reincarnation, so we can bring the discussion out into the light about what happens to our souls after death. But before we go too much further, I'd like to thank Raphael Crux for allowing us to use his music from the freepedia.com public domain music site. For today's case, we travel back to India to the village of Bard to explore the intriguing case of Titu Singh and his memories of being a shopkeeper in Agra. This story first appeared in Reincarnation International and was broadcast in the BBC TV news program called 40 Minutes. It was then investigated by Antonia Mills, who is a researcher, at Ian Stevenson's request, as he wanted to see if other people would reach the same findings when replicating his procedures on reincarnation cases. Torin Singh, or Titu, as he was known to everybody, was born to a family in Bard village, which is approximately 13 miles from Agra, both of which are situated in northern India. Titu's mother was ill for the last trimester of her pregnancy and was admitted to hospital under the name of a family friend a week before she gave birth, as his military status allowed her admittance to the medical facility. I can't find Titu's parents' names listed anywhere, so I think they must have preferred to remain anonymous. Titu is the youngest of six children and has three brothers and three sisters, with the oldest sibling being 13 years older than him. The actual date of Titu's birth is somewhat vague and this becomes important, but I'll discuss that later. Among the Army Hospital birth records, the birth date that seems to closely fit Titu's birth was the 11th of December 1982. However, in the summer of 1987, Titu's parents said that they thought he was four and a half years old and Titu's father gave his birth date as the 10th of December 1983. So, the earlier birth date suggested by the records may relate to another child's birth, we're not sure. When Titu was two and a half, he began to tell his family that he had another life in Agra. Not long after he learned to talk, he said, Tell my grandfather to look after my children and my wife. I'm having my meals here and I'm worried about them. When his mother questioned him, he told her that he was from Agra, but he didn't know how he'd come to Bard. When he was still very young, Titu began complaining about his current lifestyle. He was embarrassed by his mother's old clothes and commented that his wife had worn beautiful saris. He said this house was dirty and that his house was big. He told them his sisters-in-law were educated. When the family travelled, he complained about having to go on foot or by bus, saying, I used to go by car. When attending a wedding, he said, I have a shop in the Sadar Bazaar. The older he got, the more he seemed to grieve his past life, and he kept saying he wanted to go home to see his brother, Raja Babu, and his sister, Sushila, and calling his parents Gulu's parents, and Gulu was also his sister. Interestingly, he was also aware that after he died, he'd seen his own funeral, and he knew he'd been cremated and that his ashes had been thrown in the river although he makes no other mention that I can find of the time between lives. One day in April 1987, he became distressed when his father went to Agra without him. A friend of his eldest brother was comforting him about missing out on the trip, 
and Titu said to him, Can you take me there? I have a shop of transistor radios and I was a big smuggler and gunda, meaning a person who uses force to get his way. Titu said, I'm the owner of Suresh Radio. At first his parents didn't take his statement seriously, but his behaviour puzzled them. He told them he was homesick, and he spoke and acted as if he was not part of their family. He told them often that he wouldn't be there long and one day he'd leave. Once he became so insistent about leaving that he rolled his clothes into a bundle and threatened to leave home. His father recounted that while Titu was just an ordinary child, sometimes he said and did things that only adults will do. And it is interesting to watch him talk about his memories in the documentary, as he doesn't speak like a child would about it. At one point in the documentary, he frowns as he relates that the video shop was his, as was the house at Sahaganj, and that it had been conned away from him, but that he'd get it back one day. Titu's brother and his friend decided to investigate some of Titu's statements to see if there was any truth to them. They sought out a shop of that name and they did find one in the Sadar Bazaar. The young men approached Yuma Verma, who was the widow of the shop owner. The two families up to this point had never met. She told them that Suresh Verma, her husband, had indeed been the owner of the radio shop but that he was also a noted black market smuggler and he'd been shot dead around the age of 30 on the 28th of August 1983. On hearing Titu's brother's account of Titu's claims, Uma said she felt very odd when she heard about this and, unsure what to do with this information, discussed it with her parents-in-law. After discussion, Suresh's family decided to visit Titu's home the next morning in April of 1987. Titu's mother described how her husband was washing at the tap and suddenly Titu shouted out that his other family had arrived. Excitedly, he recognised Uma, Suresh's parents and two of the three brothers who were present. The Singh family seated their visitors on the veranda and Titu asked Uma to come and sit near him, which apparently is a bit odd. He asked her if she recognised him and she said no. He asked about the children, Ronu and Sonu, and if she remembered a family outing to a fair in a neighbouring city where her husband Suresh, the man that Titu remembered being, had bought sweets for Uma. There was no way anyone could have known about this and Uma was stunned and was too shocked to speak. He was also able to describe Suresh's home and unique details about it, recalling that his car had been white, and he also recalled how Suresh had died. After the visit with the family, it was arranged that Titu should come to Agra, but Suresh's family wanted to test Titu to see if they could catch him out. In an attempt to test him, it was arranged for Suresh's two children to be playing in the street among a group of other neighbourhood children to see if he could recognise them. Titu did indeed recognise them straight away, singling them out from their friends. It's also purported that Suresh's family told him they were taking him to see the radio and TV shop, but actually took him to a similar shop that was owned by Suresh's brother. However, Titu wasn't deceived. One of the visits to the radio shop was recorded, 
I'm not sure which one it was. It looks like it was the first time they were together, but logically I wonder how that can be, as I'm not sure the camera crew were involved at the time T2 first met Uma. They may have been, but I can't say for certain about that. Regardless, the way Uma and T2 interact with each other is quite fascinating to watch. At first, T2 is very shy and keeps burying his face in his father's jacket obviously extremely uncomfortable with being in the shop with his children and his past-life wife. After a while, he sits on a stool at the counter of the shop and Uma asks him whose picture she has behind the shop counter. He points to it and he says, Mine, and he stares at it really intently for quite a while, and when Uma asks her the name of the man in the photo, he mumbles Suresh, his gaze riveted to the photo. Uma asks him when it was taken and he says, before I died. Titu is asked why his children are bigger than him and he replies, I used to be big. When he was asked, well, why are you small now? He replied, I've been born again. After a while, both Uma and Titu start to relax and you can see an interplay between them that's really interesting. Titu had mentioned that in his past life he had hidden his gold in a hole at the house in Sahaganj. At the radio shop visit, Uma asks him should she dig for the gold, and Titu replies, you'll be wasting your time. She says, well, tell me where to dig then. He says, I'll dig for it myself. I'll give you half, but keep half for myself. The two of them banter back and forth, laughing at times, and there's a definite warmth and connection between them. At one point, Uma asks him, do you want to come home with me? And frustratingly, they don't translate his response, but something about the exchange hints of intimacy, particularly from Uma. She then asks, shall I come to your village? And Titu replies, you won't like it there. He then goes on to point out all of the changes that have been made in the shop, pointing to shelving units on the wall, declaring that they'd been added, but he did say the ceiling still looked the same. Uma states clearly that she believes Titu is her dead husband, Suresh, but that he lives several miles away. She stated, I expect we'll keep on meeting, but beyond that, what can I do? Uma told researcher Antonia Mills, I know it is Suresh, but I realise that no purpose can be served. We can't have that same relationship again. The murder of Suresh obviously affected Uma as much as it resonated on Titu, and both of them have very troubling memories of the murder. Titu said that he was coming home from work and a man came running across from the street corner. The man shot Suresh while he was sitting in his car. Titu said that Suresh had been shot in the head, and this was corroborated by Uma. Uma relates that she was inside the house and heard a noise. She went outside thinking Suresh's car had backfired. Suresh didn't get out of the car and when Uma opened the door, Suresh's body fell on her and she screamed. The autopsy indicated that Suresh was shot in the right temple. Titu has a small white round birthmark in the exact position of the entrance wound. There are also a series of small birthmarks on the back of his skull and it was postulated that these might relate to the exit wound. 
And these wounds could possibly be consistent with the damage caused to Suresh's body at the time of the shooting. When a bullet enters the skin, the elasticity of the skin causes it to retract, often creating a hole that is smaller than the actual bullet. The bullet will usually travel straight through and exit the body again unless it encounters bone, which can deflect the bullet and shatter the bone. So it could be theorised that the small birthmarks on the back of T2's head could possibly be indicators of pieces of bone that shattered and caused damage to Suresh's head. But no one has really talked about that being discussed in the autopsy, so we can't really know that for sure. However, the most telling finding was discovered by Antonia Mills behind T2's right ear. And to understand that, we need to understand that People in India drive on the left-hand side of the road as people started driving while India was under British rule. So this means that Suresh would have been sitting in the front right-hand seat of the car. From the wounds on his body, it appears that the man ran up to the driver's side window, Suresh turned his head to look at the man, and the man shot him in the temple. So to get back to Antonia Mills's finding, as mentioned, the actual exit wound site listed on the autopsy was behind Suresh's right ear. When Mills examined Titu, she found that his skull was somewhat pushed out behind his right ear, a deformity that his parents had noticed but hadn't actually ascribed to being caused by injury from the past life. Titu also has a birthmark on his crown that matches one on Suresh that he had all of his life too. But it isn't just physical marks that harken back to the life of Suresh. Personality-wise, Titu shares a similar character to Suresh and is described as active, intrepid and hot-tempered. You can see hints of his strong personality in the documentary. Suresh was of a similar demeanour and in his life, twice had successfully defended himself from the hitmen who tried to kill him before they finally succeeded. Researcher Antonia Mills described seeing Titu beating another child with a sugar cane. When Mills was interested in a bangle that she was thinking of buying, Titu threatened to shoot or kick the seller if he charged her for it. And when Mills and her crew took Titu to Suresh Radio, Titu acted as if he were still the owner and smacked a stool upon entering and leaving the shop, which was a habit that Suresh had done. Titu was also able to operate the tape deck in the car, even though he'd never seen one before, and he was able to drive a car a short way, working the steering wheel, gas pedal, brake and clutch, while he was supervised by Suresh's brother. The unfolding of this story was very difficult for Titu's parents, both because of his insistence that he would not be with them long, and because he was so strongly drawn to his past life family. Even as a five-year-old boy, Titu struggled with the fact that his home was in Bard, and he frequently told his father that he would not be with them long. When Titu was taken to the house of Suresh's parents, Titu told them, I'm just passing through with these people, who do not have a TV, a car, a video. I will run away to you. When it was time to go home, Titu fought so hard to stay with Suresh's parents that he ripped his father's shirt and was only appeased by the promise of a visit from Suresh's father. 
Titu's mother said she didn't mind him talking about his other parents and that she felt that they were all part of the same family now. She said she was comforted by his childish loyalty because he would say that although he had parents elsewhere, his parents came from his lifetime as Titu. But you can see quite clearly that it was very painful and difficult for Titu's parents, as he clearly held himself back from the family and felt shame about the more modest life he was leading now and did keep telling them he wouldn't be there long. I think Titu's parents really struggled with the memories. Titu's father commented, I fear that as Titu gets older, he may break all ties with us. We love him very much, but despite being educated, we're unable to understand his story. Suresh's parents are also certain that Titu is the reincarnation of their dead son, and Titu did stay in touch with them. They relate an interesting moment that happened when Titu was with them one day, and the group came across one of Suresh's former nannies. The nanny thought Titu was one of Uma's sons, and Titu got annoyed at her, saying, Don't you know who I am? Suresh's father said, Titu clings to us with affection, and we talk like father and son. But I don't encourage it too much because it upsets his real parents. So I mentioned earlier in the story that Titu's birth date becomes a factor in this case, and some of you may have picked up on its meaning already, and it raises that uncomfortable question that I've raised once before in another case. Titu's birthday is considered to be either the 11th of December 1982 or the 10th of December 1983. Suresh Verma died on the 28th of August, 1983. So if T2 was born in 1982, then it means that the original consciousness inhabiting the body of T2 was displaced or overtaken by the consciousness of Suresh Verma. And we assume that the original inhabitant was forced out, which makes this a similar case to the Helmut Kohler case. If T2 was born in 1983, then Suresh Verma couldn't have inhabited the baby that was still in the womb until late August or in the third trimester of pregnancy. I mentioned at the beginning of this account that Titu's mother was very ill in the third trimester of her pregnancy, which brings us to the age-old question, at what stage does a fetus demonstrate consciousness? Is it possible that Suresh was trying to push out the consciousness that had already claimed the fetus in order to inhabit it himself. Is that why his mother was so sick in her third trimester? Antonia Mills made an excellent point when she points out that Suresh inhabiting an already born eight-month-old child would not explain why that child would have birthmarks that relate to injuries that hadn't even happened at the time of the baby's birth, unless there was some complex pre-knowledge or foreshadowing of Suresh's murder that was going on, which also means that that consciousness which was inhabiting the baby presumably would have had to know it was going to be displaced. I'm willing to consider anything if you can give me a logical reason for it, but that seems to be a pretty big ask to me. Of the two scenarios, 
a third trimester takeover sounds like the much more plausible possibility, particularly when you do consider Titu's mother's illness that was so bad she needed to be hospitalised. Either way, it still raises the uncomfortable concept of how much a consciousness can interact and possibly interrupt a previously settled consciousness. I've mentioned before that we never really consider the strength of souls, and we know that Suresh, and now Titu, was a very strong personality that was used to gaining what he wanted by force. I find it more plausible that through illness or high fever, a stronger consciousness may step in and reclaim the body of a child that would normally die. But in this case, it's another step deeper down the rabbit hole to ponder whether a stronger personality might physically drive out another consciousness in some form of forceful takeover. Now that sounds a very ominous and frightening concept, but if we recognise that souls never really die, or at the very least live for thousands of years, it alters the perception of a displacement and takes away some of the implied violence and force behind it. There's no indication that the displaced soul is damaged or destroyed, so to speak, and instead is just pushed out of a body that it intended to exist in. But we can only assume, from the facts accumulated about reincarnation cases, that the displaced soul still exists and may come back to exist again. There is even a case that Jim Tucker documented of the woman who appeared to have two consciousnesses existing at the same time in her body for a large chunk of her life. I discussed this in an earlier episode, and I'll run through it now again for those of you who haven't caught up with the back episodes yet. So this is the case of a young woman called Utara, who attended a hospital for treatment and meditation for an illness that she had. Utara had meditated before, without incident. But after one session, her behaviour changed dramatically. She became erratic, she wandered away from the hospital several times and began speaking in another language than her native tongue. She told everyone her name was Sharada, and she no longer was able to communicate with her parents as she didn't know their language. She told of a completely different life in Bengal, no longer recognised her own friends, and seemed to come from another time period, being unfamiliar with any implements created after the Industrial Revolution. This new personality stayed in control for several weeks, then was slowly usurped by Utara's original personality. Initially, the personalities switched approximately 23 times in the first few days, and then finally, Utara seemed to be back in control. But at times, Shirada, the other personality, would appear again, and on one occasion stayed for seven weeks. Shirada could tell you the names of several of the males in her other family, and this family tree was traced to a family that had lived in West Bengal in the early 19th century. So Utara's body appeared to have at least been partially taken over by the soul of a woman who lived 150 years before. Shirada would return periodically through Utara's life, although at the end she was only appearing approximately once a year for short periods of time. 
So Uttara's case seems to indicate that two consciousnesses can exist and even cohabit relatively peacefully. As there was no mention made of either consciousness in this case, feeling ill at ease or upset by this shared experience. It does indeed seem that Uttara's own consciousness was the stronger of the two. Shirada was clearly less dominant and by the end of Uttara's life only appeared approximately once a year. Whatever the truth of how this life began, Titu himself has not fallen into the patterns of the past that led to his tragic death in that life. In this life, he's chosen a path for personal growth and earned a master's degree in yoga and naturopathy. He now works as an assistant professor at Banras Hindu University in Varanasi, Uttar Pradesh, India, teaching naturopathy and yoga therapy. I think Titu himself sums up his experiences best in an article from the website Alatra Vesti. Titu noted that having the memories of Suresh was difficult and that they would rise up at times that he was experiencing negative emotional experiences. He's quoted as saying, As soon as I got angry, all memories of my past life surfaced. I was worried a lot. Now that I've grown up and become a family man, I've learned to deal with it. But day by day, I forget these past memories and all that. But I want to get away from it completely because it's impossible to live a double life. The past is the past. We must live in the present. Thank you for listening to Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. We hope you enjoyed this case. If you have any interesting stories about reincarnation or if you can relate your own past life experiences, I'd love to hear about them and I can be contacted through my email at reincarnationplr at gmail.com or via my Facebook page, Reincarnation Past Lives Revisited. If you feel like supporting the podcast, you can subscribe through Patreon and your support is greatly appreciated. I don't do extra content, but you'll hopefully gain a warm and fuzzy feeling of supporting me and allowing me to keep on doing what I love doing and hopefully what you like hearing. We'll be back again soon with another episode, but until then, remember you are unique and your life has a purpose. Mm-hmm.